one of the most painful, dramatic, and controversial stories in the entire Torah takes place in this week's Parsha in Perak Lamedalid, as we read about Dina, daughter of Yaakov, going out, where she's then seen, kidnapped, raped by Shechem, the son of Hamor. Afterwards, he truly is infatuated with her. He asks his father to speak with Yaakov about perhaps allowing him to marry Dina. Hamor actually suggests not only a marriage of these two children, but a, more of a merger between the two nations or clans. The Yaakov's family settle with them, that of their children all marry, that they merge their commerce. Yaakov, having brought his sons to the negotiation, lets his sons take the lead in the negotiation, a curiosity which we will not have time to delve into. But the children agree to the proposal with one stipulation, that all of the men from Shechem and Hamor and their city and their clan agree to circumcise themselves as part of some form of a conversion. The people of Shechem actually agree to the proposal on a wide scale. And then, shockingly, on the third day after their circumcision, when they're in extra special pain, the Torah tells us that two of Dina's brothers, two of Yaakov's sons, Shimon and Levi, enter the city, kill all of the males, and rescue Dina. If that's not enough, the story and the chapter end with Yaakov confronting his children. And he is furious at Shimon and Levi. First of all, he says, You have tainted or embarrassed me, making me odious, disrespected among the inhabitants of the land. Moreover, he says, Plus, who do you think we are? We're just a small family living in this dangerous neighborhood, so to speak. When people hear what we've done, you've put us all in danger. However, as strong as that is, can you imagine getting that level of a critique from your father, and especially when your father is Yaakov Avinu? However, fascinatingly and powerfully and emotionally, the Torah actually gives the last words to the brothers, to Shimon and Levi. Yomru, they reply to Yaakov, so to speak, staring him in the eye, should, should we have allowed our sister to have been treated like a harlot? And incredibly, as I say, the Torah gives the last words to the children, to the brothers. There is no recounting of Yaakov's response. And then the next chapter, Paraklamet Hay, begins with a new and completely different and unrelated story. This dramatic story, this incredible narrative, needs to be understood on many, many levels. However, to focus on just one, there is a lengthy piece by the Ramban, in which he goes into great t- detail to discuss perhaps both a literary but even perhaps a halachic or moral question of the story. How do we understand the behavior of the brothers? Why was Yaakov upset if he was at the negotiation with his sons? So presumably he knew about the plan, or did he? Who was really right, Yaakov or his sons? Did the whole city deserve to be killed? These are the fundamental questions that need to be asked and understood in this story. And the Ramban relates to all of them. And he explains that, in fact, really what was happening was as follows. The initial plan Yaakov was on board with. According to the Ramban, the initial plan, with Yaakov's consent, was to offer marriage and merger 
on condition of the Brismila in conversion, as we read about in the Torah text. However, the Ramban adds that all of them, father and sons, assumed that Shechem and Chamor and their clan would never agree. Who would agree in the ancient world to circumcise, to convert, to be joining with Yaakov and his family? They'll never agree. And even as a backup, the brothers and Yaakov agreed, well, if they do shock us, they surprise us and go ahead with the circumcision, then on the third day they'll be weak, and we can go in and rescue Dina. Initially, the Ramban says nothing about killing. However, he then says, well, perhaps they had agreed that they would kill Shechem, the rapist, the kidnapper, and then they would take Dina. However, it was the brothers on their own who decided to kill everyone, and that's why Yaakov was upset. But of course, this begs the question, why did the brothers do it? So Ramban brings two approaches. First, that of the Rambam. The Rambam says in Telchus Malachim that one of the seven Noachide laws, which presumably Shechem and Chamor and his people were obligated in, one of the seven Noachide laws is Dinim, which the Rambam understands means that you have to judge yourself or your own civilization, your city, on the other six. One of the six was certainly kidnapping, rape, and Shechem was clearly guilty of that. And all of the people were not so innocent. They were all guilty because they never punished, they didn't judge they didn't punish Shechem. They never enforced the law. They didn't enforce it. So he was in violation of one, but they were in violation of one of the other of the seven Noahide laws. That's the Rambam's view. The Ramban himself rejects this view. Because in his opinion, Dinim, that one of the seven Noahide laws, is not about judging the other six primarily, but rather it's an independent obligation to create a civil and monetary legal system. A subsidiary of that, says Ramban, is to set up a judicial system to enforce that civil and monetary law. But, says Ramban, not having a judicial system, not enforcing that law, wouldn't be a capital offense. Since, says the Ramban, you'd only killed if you actively violate one of the Noahide laws, but not if you passively don't fulfill the law. And therefore, even though it's true that they didn't uh, judge Shechem, but that did not make them deserving of death. However, says Ramban, listen, of course these were not good people from a religious perspective. They were guilty of idolatry and sexual morality on their own. But he says, crucially, that's not Shimon and Levi's business. It wasn't their responsibility. So why, according to Ramban, he gives his own second view. Why did the brothers do it? Simply out of revenge and anger. And now we understand why Yaakov was upset with them, both for the practical reasons, but also because he says, you gave your word and you backed out of your word and you killed them. And that was wrong for you to do because they did nothing to you. So we have an incredible debate between Rambam and Ramban. First of all, what's the definition of dinim, one of the Noahide laws? And perhaps most fundamentally, who was right? The Rambam clearly is sympathetic to the brothers, while the Ramban is much more sympathetic to Yaakov, the father. Having survived the varied threats of his brother Esav, then his uncle Lavan, Yaakov finally returns to his homeland. In the Torah's description of that return, we learn that Vayavo Yaakov Shalem, Yer Shechem, Asher Be'eretz Kenan. Where did he first arrive? Where does the Torah first tell us? He came back to the land of Canaan, to the land of Israel, to the city specifically of Shechem. But the Torah does more than just tell us where he arrived, to tell us how he arrived. Vayavo Yaakov Shalem. He came Shalem. Shalem usually we would translate as perfect or complete. What exactly does that mean? In what sense is that true? So the Gemara, Masech the Shabbos, and Aflamid Gimel, explains that it means 
in the name, <coughs> excuse me, of Rav. Rav teaches us it means Shalem Begufo, Shalem Bimamono, Shalem Bitaraso. Excuse me, Yaakov was whole or complete, perfect when it came to his body, his physical health, his financial situation, Mamono, and then ultimately Taraso, his Torah or his spiritual health or situation. What exactly do these mean and why are these three of all things mentioned? So Rashi, in his commentary on our Parsha, when he brings down this Gemara, he adds a little bit, you could say, or editorializes and explains that all of these three were not chosen at random, but rather relate to Yaakov's recent challenges. Shalim Begufo, that specifically refers to Shinesrape Me Sliaso. He recovered from the damage, from the pain that he had had when he fought with the angel earlier in our Parsha. Shalim Bimamono says Rashi that even though he had to spend enormous amounts of money giving expensive gifts that he had to offer to his brother uh, Esav at their famous confrontation, nevertheless his financial situation had recovered and stabilized and he was doing well in that regard. And lastly, and most importantly, Shalim Bitaroso Shakach Tomudo Bebeis Lavan. Despite being all of those years in a foreign, hostile, and certainly not a spiritually nourishing environment, of his uncle, then turned father-in-law. Nevertheless, he remained shalem, whole in his spiritual commitment and in his Torah knowledge. In a very beautiful teaching contained in the Sefer Ein Ayah on Masecha Shabbos, Rav Kook delves into the deeper message of this Gemara, of this Maimar Chazal. And Rav Kook explains that it's not simply three random things that Yaakov excelled at, not simply three important areas of life that Yaakov remained whole despite recent challenges. Rather, what Chazal are underscoring for us about Yaakov the person, and more importantly about the more the broader principles, which hopefully we can take into our own lives, is a notion of shlemus, of what does it mean to be whole? What does it mean to be genuinely whole, complete, successful, in any area of life. And Rav Kook starts by noting that at first glance, superficially, we assume that each area of life, despite it having one delineated sector of one's life, nevertheless, if one is truly maximizing an all-in, as we might say, uh, on that area, eventually it either bleeds into other areas of our life, or at least clouds out. There's no other space for other things, to the point that shlemus, perfection in one area of life, often unattended, but often comes at the expense of other areas. So Rav Cook gives an example, specifically using the first two issues that we have in our Gemara and in Rashi, that often a person wants to achieve shlemus in their guf, they want to be healthy, and they want to therefore exercise and buy the right foods, etc., etc. However, as shortly you realize that in order to do that, Right? It's not easy, uh, unfortunately, as history has shown us, to be really healthy if we're poor. Unfortunately, there's a certain a minimum bar of financial resources that are necessary to live a healthy life. And therefore, a person then changes their focus and focuses, therefore, on hashlamas mamon, on getting more money. Unfortunately, says Rav Kook, often the pursuit of money, and then you lose focus, and unfortunately, you become unhealthy. In other words, Using that simple example, says Rav Cook, often, and for not just often, typically, unfortunately, things 
whether we intend it or not, end up coming at the expense of the other, and really multiple values become in competition with one another. However, says Rav Kook, Yaakov was the Tiferes. He was the perfect synthesis. And he showed how ultimately both body and mind, guf and mamon, all these different things ultimately can serve a higher unified purpose. And that in fact, tikkun hasechel, tikkun hamoser, fixing one's body, being a healthy, having a healthy life, having a healthy mind, all of these things can ultimately and should ultimately serve to be integrated into having the higher goal of a spiritual pursuit. In Rav Kook's beautiful language, Yaakov Avinu Haisa Iker Magamasol Laharos Lakol. His main focus was to teach us. Yes, there are things that are inherently more important than others. Torah is more important than the other ones. Certainly more important than money. But nevertheless, there's no aspect of perfection, of human perfection, says Rav Kook, whether it's the more elevated or not. And that, of course, is the key words. If you're Yuvan Yafa, if we truly understand at the depths, the importance and how these relate to each other, none of them have to come at the expense of one another. And certainly they should not contradict each other. Therefore, says Rav Kook so beautifully, Yaakov personified that synthesis. He was Shalem Begufo, he was Shalem Bimono, and says Rav Kook, from both of them together integrated, and that's how he became truly Shalem in his Torah. It wasn't at the expense of one or the other. One doesn't have to be an extremist in one area and disregard the others, but rather properly understood, harnessed, and balanced, they can be integrated, all serving that ultimate, ultimate spiritual purpose. And therefore, if Cook concludes by saying, that's what we say, Yaakov was the Ish Tum. Tum means whole or complete. Yaakov was that integrated, complete, whole tzaddik. Vayishlach, like many of these recent and upcoming partios, is filled with multiple incredible stories. And one of those stories is, of course, the famous fight or wrestling match that is described that took place between Yaakov and that man, that stranger. The Torah tells us in Parakalamid Bey's Pasachafei, Vayavasar Yaakov Levado, Vyavek Ish Imo, Ad Alosashachar that Yaakov, having gone back to collect something that he had forgotten in his previous encampment, gets confronted at night. He fights throughout the night with a man, an unknown, anonymous man, and they fight until the dawn of the next day. In the Bracious Rabbah in Parsha Ayin Zion, there is an incredible medrash that analyzes numerous aspects of this mysterious and intriguing pasuk. And through that analysis of the Medrash, reveals deep insights, not only regarding Yaakov and Esav, but also the nature of the Jewish people and Jewish history and destiny. First and foremost, the Medrash wonders, who is this Ish? Who is this anonymous, strange man who decides to fight and confront Yaakov during the night? The Medrash tells us very famously, this was none other than Saro Shel Esav, the angel that represents Esav. Of course, I can't say I know exactly that I understand what that means, but the Medrash is telling us that this was not just any man, but something divine, something miraculous, something metaphysical. What is really interesting when you read the Medrash, 
uh, more than just the famous short version of it in which we identify the Ish as the angel, the archangel of Esav, is that when you look in the Medrash itself, it grounds this amazing claim in the text. I wouldn't say that you could call this simple, straight reading of the text, pshat, but still it's much more grounded than one might have thought after all the Medrash notes that we'll read in the next parak when Yaakov actually meets Esav himself, when Yaakov is confronted by his brother, the Pasuk tells us in Parak Lamed Gimel, Pasuk Yud, Al-Kain ra'iti panecha kiraos panei alukim. Yaakov says, when I see your face, it's as if it's like seeing the face of God. Now again, perhaps one could read it in context as just, you know, Yaakov kind of uh, trying to flatter his brother. But the Medrash says, no, he meant something much deeper. Looking at you is like looking at the face of God. That is to say that Esav resembled the archangel who represented him. If Esav was the human incarnation, so to speak, of evil confronting Yaakov in this world, the archangel, the Saro Shel Esav, apparently, either physically or on some other level, mirrored Esav to the point that when he looked, when Yaakov looked at Esav there, says the Medrash, he felt like he was looking at the archangel and vice versa. And therefore, this otherwise uh, inexplicable, perhaps, pasuk, uh, other than maybe you would have said he was just flattering him without any basis, but actually this gives it much more rooting uh, in the words itself. Very, very interesting. Uh, the pasuk continues, and in fact we read in the very next pasuk, pasuk Havav, that after they fought all through the night, Vayar kilo yachalo, that the uh, angel, uh, so to speak, the uh, this person he was fighting, who we're now defining as the angel, saw that he could no longer, that he could not defeat Yaakov. And the Medrash uh, wonders, what does it mean, Vayar? And he saw. What did he see? Now, the simple, the second answer, uh, or one might say, is that it doesn't mean it literally, it means it figuratively, and we'll get to that in the second answer. But the first answer of the Medrash is that it means literally the angel saw something. And what did it see? It saw the Shekhinah, it saw the Divine Presence. And the Medrash explains this by offering a metaphor, a parable, a mushal, of a professional fighter who was in a wrestling or boxing match with the prince, with the king's son. And they're fighting back and forth, and clearly the angel, excuse me, the, uh, the professional boxer or fighter has the strength and the skills to defeat the prince. And when, in the middle of the fight, all of a sudden this boxer recognizes and sees that it's none other than the king, standing off to the side, there to support his son. Seeing the king, reminding him of who this boy who he's fighting is, immediately the professional boxer gets scared, is in awe of the king, scared what it would mean if he would defeat the king, drops his guard, and the Medrash continues, then the prince defeats him. So too, says the Medrash, Vayar, the angel saw the Shekhinah there. He realized that Hashem was not neutral in this fight. Hashem was on Yaakov's side. And that's when he realized he could no longer win, he had no chance, and he stopped fighting. The second explanation of the Medrash is that it doesn't mean the angel actually saw anything, but he understood. What did the angel understand that he, when he, we say he can't win? So again, the simple understanding is, you're fighting with someone, at some point you realize, you know what, my skills, his skills, they're more or less even, I can't defeat him. But the Medrash understands it in a more profoundly spiritual way. Akarish Baruch Hu, in essence, says to the angel, Yaakov has so many merits, five specifically, his own, his parents, that's three, and his grandparents, Yitzchak and Rivka, that's five. Do you really think that you can defeat him? 
After all, the Medrash continues, and this is actually based on a previous Medrash, you only have two merits, Esav. You have the merit of Kibar Aim. Famously, Esav was good at Kibar Aim, And you have the merit of Yishev Eretz Yisrael. Unlike Yaakov, you never left the land of Israel. Do you really think you could defeat him? And what's so striking about this part of the Medrash is that all of the biographical uh, merits of Yaakov, his parents and his grandparents, apply equally to Esav. And yet the Medrash is clearly assuming that Esav would not benefit from having the merit of his parents and grandparents, because as the Medrash itself said previously, this phenomenon known as Zechus Avos, that we have a benefit that redounds to us from our parents or grandparents, that only stands in your stead if you follow in their ways. Yaakov did, he had the benefit of his parents, his grandparents, Esav, did not, and therefore, Vayar, so to speak, Esav understood, the angel understood, there's no way I can defeat him. As the uh, Pasuk, uh, excuse me, continues that they ended up going Aralos HaShachar, the Medrash concludes that this is a metaphor for the long journey of Jewish history. They fought all night into a standstill. Neither side defeated each other and will remain in conflict until the sun sets on this stage of history and the new dawn, the dawn of the Messianic era begins. Only then will this fight finally be resolved. As Yaakov prepares for the confrontation with his brother Esau, he offers a prayer to Hashem. And in that prayer, he reflects on the great journey that he himself has made since he last left his parental home, since he last saw Esau. And he declares in a very well-known pasuk, Katon timikol chasadim umikol ha'emes asher asita es avdecha. I am, and I, I would say the simple understanding of the Pasuk is, I am unworthy, katonti, I am small, I am unworthy, considering all of the chasadim, all the great kindness and gifts that Hashem has given me, asher asita After all, as he concludes, the last time I passed over this river when I left my parents' home, I had nothing, just a stick in my hands. Now, my family, my possessions have grown so much, that I actually have to divide them into two camps. Rashi actually translates katonti as, I am diminished. That is to say that I had certain reward that I deserved because of all the things I've done that are appropriate. I thought maybe that I'd have that reward saved for me in the next world, but yet I see all the blessing that I've gotten already in this world, so that's, so to speak, uh, diminishing. It's running the account down for the reward I'll get in the next world. However, I'd like to focus not on Rashi's interesting interpretation, but a beautiful, beautiful idea that is suggested and developed by the Sfasemes, the Ger Rebbe, as he presents actually two ideas. I'll first mention briefly an idea he says from somebody else, and then we'll focus most of our attention on an incredible thought of his own. So the Sfasemes, the Ger Rebbe, begins by noting in the name of his grandfather, the insight of an even earlier Hasidic sage, the Chose Milublin, who said in a very creative, kind of classically Hasidic play on words or re- creative reading of the Pasuk, he says the ability to remain humble, to be katonti, to be humble, katonti, that feeling of unworthiness, the ability to remain katonti even after a person has success like Yaakov did, that is Mikola Hasadim. That's the greatest chesed Hashem can perform. Katonti mikol chasadim. To remain with a feeling of katonti, to remain with a feeling of humility, even after you've succeeded, mikol chasadim. That's the greatest of all the chasadim that Hashem could give you. Because of course, naturally, when we have success, family, personal or professional, 
we're prone to losing our humility and becoming arrogant. But if Hashem can bless me, that not only was I successful, but I remained humble, katonti, mikol chasadim. That's the greatest chasad. That's a very creative, but sharp, and I think very meaningful insight of the Chosam Yilublin, which I think is worthy of uh, further thought and meditation by all of us. However, I do want to spend uh, the remaining time focusing on the Sfasemes' own interpretation. And his interpretation, I think, is somewhat creative and counterintuitive, and therefore we'll appreciate it more if we introduce it by what I think is the more typical understanding of what we think Yaakov might be saying. I think ordinarily, I think we all know ourselves. We know ourselves better than anyone else can know us, even better than our spouse or our children. And we therefore know, if we're being brutally honest, we know just how imperfect we are. We know just how unworthy we truly are and how undeserving we are for all the blessings in our life. Therefore, since we know all of our faults, we know how unworthy we are. Therefore, when I see the blessings of my life, I realize that Hashem has given them to me, not because I deserve them, but because of chesed, Hashem's kindness. I think there's undoubtedly a certain truth to that, profound truth. But that's not what the Svasema says. He says, on the contrary, the deeper and even more meaningful explanation is that through all of the chasadim that Hashem has done for me, as a result of all of the brachos that Hashem has brought into my life, that's how I know Katonti. That's how I know that I'm undeserving. That is to say, if I had just gotten a little bracha, a little chesed from Hashem, then I might delude myself into thinking, you know, I'm a good person. I do good things. I do mitzvot. I'm kind. I'm honest. I'm caring. I'm pious. So I probably deserve the things I'm getting. But then I see it's not just a little blessing, but this much blessing, this much kindness, so much bracha in my life, There's no way I'm that good. There's no way I deserve that much blessing and kindness in my life. In other words, says Asfas the more chesed, the more bracha I have in my life, the more I realize just how undeserving I am of all of it. And this is, he says, is what Yaakov was saying. Katonti mikola chasadim. Given how much blessing I have in my life, I realize katonti, there's no way I deserve it. It's really Hashem's kindness. And that's the continuation of the Pasuk. Yaakov recalls, Kibamakli, I used to have nothing. I left my parents' house with nothing more than my staff. And look what I have now, a great family, wealth. In other words, it's not just that Yaakov was humble despite his success. He was humble because of his success. And then the Sfas Emes adds one more point, which is also so insightful and so instructive. He says, It's not a small thing, says Asfas Emes, to still remember after 20 years what you once were. In other words, says Asfas Emes, it's one thing to be grateful and humbled initially when you receive a great blessing. But the tendency is that usually over time, you get used to that blessing until it becomes second nature, until it just becomes part of who you are, and you forget that you ever were something else. You forget who you were. You forget where you came from. And you definitely forget that initial humble and undeserving feeling. Yaakov's greatness was to have genuine humility, which remained and grew 
over time. Since, as his blessings grew, therefore his humility only deepened. And that is certainly no small thing, and all part of the greatness of Yaakov, and all part of what we hopefully can aspire to and learn from him. The more blessing in our life, the more humble we should be. The incredible story of Shimon Alevi rescuing Dina and killing not only Shem and Hamor, but all of the men in the city, gives rise to many fascinating and important debates. One debate, of course, is either you could say parshanut or even philosophical. How do we understand and justify what the brothers did? How do we understand the clear disagreement between the brothers and Yaakov, who is critical of their behavior? But in addition to all that, there's also a somewhat technical but actually very fascinating machlokas that emerges about the scope and the definition of the mitzvah of dinim, one of the seven Noahide laws, one of the shiva mitzvahs b'nei Noach, is dinim. And what exactly does that mean? So that comes to the fore. Turns out it's really a debate which emerges out of this story. The Rambam in Hilchus Malachim in Parakhtes, in his description of that mitzvah, borrows or uses our story as inspiration and explains that the reason that the brothers were correct to judge the entire inhabitants of the city, the entire city is guilty and deserving of death, is because they, even though they didn't kidnap or rape Dina, but they had violated a different Noachide prohibition with a capital offense, that of Dinim, which the Rambam defines as to judge, and to specifically judge the other six Noachide laws. And therefore, since there had already been a violation of kidnapping, etc., the people should have judged the prince. The fact that they let him get away with it means that all of them were now guilty and therefore they were deserving of death because they violated, according to the Rambam, this obligation of dinim. As a side point, the Radvaz asks a very important question, which is that the Rambam does such a good job of explaining why the people were deserving of death and the brother's perspective. What about Yaakov? Why was he upset with them then? So the Radvaz explains that because the people of the town had converted, they were no longer governed by the rules of B'nai Noach, but the dinim of the Torah. And therefore, whatever level of communal justice they should have enforced, it certainly was not a capital offense that they did not do it, because that capital offense is limited to the Noachide laws. It's an interesting kind of side technical point. Uh, However, there's another interesting question here still staying within the position of the Rambam, which I think is perhaps even more interesting and more fundamental, which is even if this is true, so then why didn't Shimon Alevi go right to the courthouse and kill the judges of the city? Or, you know, find out who those judges were. In other words, if there are judges who should have judged the prince and didn't do it, and they're guilty, fair enough. But what does that have to do with every person in the city? Not every person there was a, a judge. So to answer this question, I saw two very... Uh, important recent achronim more or less give the same answer. Rav Meir Don Plotsky, who was a famed Hasidish Talmud Chacham in the, the pre-Holocaust Poland, as well as even more recently in Eretz Yisrael, the great Ponovich Rosh Hashiva Rav Shach and his commentary Avi Ezri, they both give the following explanation, which is even according to the Rambam, the commandment of Dinim is to judge and the appointment of judges, and the actual execution of that judgment 
is just a how-to. It's a practical way for this mitzvah and this commandment to be carried out. As such, the judges were mere objects or ways to enforce the commandment. But the actual obligation was incumbent on the people. In other words, if I could be even more clear, uh, the obligation, they say, is to have a judicial system and to carry out justice. The actual judges are just the representatives, if you will, the agents, the shaliach of the society. But it's not an obligation on judges to judge. It's an obligation on the society to have judgment and to execute justice. So all of that is an interesting discussion within the position of the Rambam, that they were guilty of dinim. And again, for our purposes, we're trying to focus on what is that mitzvah of dinim for non-Jews. And the answer is, according to the Rambam, to judge each other about the other six. The Rambam disagrees, excuse me, the Ramban disagrees with the Rambam here. And in addition to all the other, if you could say, philosophical or parshanu reasons, he also disagrees on a halachic level. He says that the mitzvah of dinim for non-Jews is not merely to judge the other six. It's much more expansive than that. It's rather that they should have their own robust civil law. And it should include not only having judges in a judicial system, but also to have all sorts of commercial and civil laws, monetary laws, that they should be uh, enacted. Given that fact, uh, on terms of the story of Shechem and uh, Shimon and Levi, the Ramban suggests that they were not obligated at all to, per se, uh, to judge Shechem. That was not the, or Chamor, that was not the, that was not the subject and the scope of the commandment. Rather, Dina means to have a civil law, to have a properly functioning society that's governed by laws and that is not lawless. Well, again, here we can also ask the question, now that we understand uh, what Dinim is, so what was going on with the brothers? So the Ramban says, well, uh, the, the, the people deserve death, but for other things, because they were just immoral idolaters, but not because of this. So then why was Yaakov so upset at them? So there's different answers to that question, but I think it's worth sharing a beautiful insight of the Chazonish, who points out that even if the people deserve death, Yaakov was upset at his children because they lied. They didn't keep their word. They were gonev das. They tricked the people. They said, if you convert, we'll marry with you. And they tricked them. And that was wrong, even if the people themselves deserved to die. One final point, just to wrap this up, which is really, really fascinating and deserving of a much longer discussion, is a machlokas achronim within the position of the Ramban. When the Ramban says that non-Jews have to have their own civil law, the Ramah has a tshuva, in which he says... They must have a civil law that is exactly like halacha, choshen mishpat, shochanaruch, civil law. That is what Noachai's non-Jews have to have. It's an amazing chiddush, and not surprisingly, other achronim, particularly the Nitziv of Valozhin, disagrees. He says even according to the Ramban, yes, they have to have civil law, monetary law, etc. But no one's expecting it to be exactly the same as shochanaruch. It can be based on seichel and oshi, common sense and common fairness.